Hi there. Thanks for joining. I am Josh. Uh, if you're around New York City on New Year's Eve, we'll be having a gathering at Center Yoga. And if you go to the dharmapunksnyc.com, you can get the link to find out all about it and the registration. I think it's from uh, like 10.30 to a little after midnight. There'll be time to connect, meditation, 2,500-year-old Buddhist ceremony, guided meditation, Dharma talk, and sober toast. So that's about the size of it. Hope you can join. As a Buddhist pastor, therapist, counselor, I don't charge for what I do. Everything I do is supported entirely by donation in accordance with the Buddha's statements on that the Dharma should be given away without charge and simply supported by dana or donation. So if you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC on the website. There's the PayPal button and a Patreon link. So uh, thank you for your support. Tonight, talking about the types of thoughts that are associated with despair and depression. And there's no better way to start out than to mention that in 2001, Shannon Sturman and uh, Jamie James Pennebaker famous psychologist, did a study called Word Use in the Poetry of Suicidal and Non-Suicidal Poets. And it was an amazing study. What they did is they developed uh, an artificial intelligence text analysis program that could ana analyze, basically, poems for words and phrases. And they examined some 300 poems written by 20 different poets. Ten of the poets had committed suicide. The other ten had actually lived pretty, uh, even though they could write uh, very dark poems, not only didn't commit suicide, but lived pretty uh, happy, emotionally regulated lives. So on the, the the poets that some of the poets that committed suicide were like Sylvia Plath and John Berryman. I don't remember the others. Anyway, the program compared the ling linguistic features of of poets who committed suicide versus those who didn't. And uh, so, one view of suicide and depression is that individuals over long periods of time uh, experience despair and lose hope for the future. So we there's hopelessness and morbidity. And if this theory is correct, one would expect the text analysis to show that poets who committed suicide and experienced extreme depression would use words like despair, morbidity, pointlessness, hopelessness, death, and so forth in their poetry. But there's another view, uh, which I was first suggested by Emile Durkheim, 
And the basic uh, theme was that individuals become extremely depressed and suicidal due to self-fixation as well as withdrawal from the social world. So if this theory is correct, poets would use, who committed suicide, would use more first-person pronouns and references to themselves and would make fewer references to relationships with others. So the analysis of the poems provided notable support that depression and suicide are associated with self-fixation, self-obsession, and social disengagement, but they found absolutely no support for the hopelessness theory. So suicidal and extremely depressed poets were more likely to use, um, were not really likely to use negative uh, words about despair, morbidity, pointlessness, death, and all that, but they would constantly use the first-person pronoun, I, and their poems would invariably reflect about thoughts about their personal uniqueness. This is not surprising. Uh, Self-absorption plays a pivotal role in mood disorders associated with both depression and self-harm, such as borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, cluster B disorders, additionally like uh, histrionic and narcissism and so forth. So self-absorption doesn't necessarily indicate selfishness at all, nor does it indicate lack of empathy. Self-absorption is invariably self-critical. So it's not self-aggrandizing. When people are self-fixated, they don't sit around thinking thoughts about, boy, how great am I? How, you know, I'm really great at these tasks. Uh, I'm really skillful. People really like me. No, that's not what what self-fixation is uh gravitates towards uh, of course due to the brain's negativity bias and also uh the fact that as we'll talk about key regions of the midline region of the frontal lobe um which are self-related also can activate repetitive intrusive ideations thoughts Self-absorption is entirely dissimilar to grandiosity, to flattering self-appraisal. It's generally dystonic thoughts or negative thoughts about oneself, focusing on personal inadequacy, a sense of shame, uh, focusing on how others might adversely see us. And uh, generally, there's a tendency of uh, self-absorbing, ruminating thoughts in that we focus on events in a way that makes us feel worse than when we started. There's no movement at all towards accepting the challenges of our lives, nor do we ever reach any viable solutions 
So in other words, uh, self-absorption, self-rumination are thoughts that um, are about our unique inadequacy or a sense of shame. Sometimes they are they involve what's called uh, uh, injustice collecting, unfairness, victimization, how others have mistreated or see us poorly. And ruminating thoughts tend to repeat. They tend to make us feel worse than when we started, and we don't reach any positive conclusions or guidance from them. So let's backtrack for a moment. We all have an inner voice or internal thought, and its origin lies in caregivers in starting at around age two and three, repeatedly give instructions to toddlers that are directing things like don't do this, don't run, don't, you know, don't eat the cookies until they're offered, don't, don't hit your siblings don't scream don't do this or that and over time toddlers internalize these messages repeat them and eventually they become the foundations of inner speech or thought so at first they're associated with self-control uh, the child uses repeats the verbal commands that the parents gave as a way to inhibit impulses while they're in situations where the parent's not with them. So the child will at first say and then eventually think, don't do this, don't do that. Um, they es establish a set of social ground rules that help children begin the process of socializing without depending on the caregiver being around all the time. So at first, uh, it's not only associated with self-control, uh, but children can use inner thought to begin to help translate feelings into words that express needs. And when they're relied on appropriately, um, inner chatter can uh, contribute to a positive state, which is called self-reflection, which is self-focus that's motivated by a, a kind of biasless curiosity that encourages us, us to connect with others and to try harder, focus attention. Um, Self-reflection doesn't in any way negatively compare ourselves with others. So there is some capability of self-rumination to be skillful, but unfortunately, the bulk of the time, extended self-related inner chatter is more often linked with unskillful, in fact, harmful outcomes. It's at first associated with mind wandering, which are thoughts that take our attention away from present time events around us. And mind wandering pulls our attention away from that pulls our attention away from the present, what we're doing 
is so common, it's known as default mode operation of the brain. It turns out almost half the time, according to a famous study by Killingsworth and Gilbert, we are in default mode operation, which means we're not paying attention to what we're doing. We're not paying attention to what we're doing with our hands or the world around us nor particularly the sensations of our body, we're paying attention to our thoughts. That's almost half of our lives. And it's fine when used strategically, but when we rely on it habitually or to amounts that are not uh, helping us make decisions um, over time, Default mode operation is associated most commonly with self-referential ideations, thinking about ourselves, because they use the same exact regions of the brain. Default mode is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the midline regions, and that's the exact region of the brain that lights up when we think about ourselves. And we really listen to what we have to say about ourselves. Uh, Charles Fernie, who was a psychologist, did some studies where he concluded that we can think about 4,000 words a minute about ourselves. That's about 20 times the rate of regular speech. And unlike self-reflection, self-rumination, um, tends towards negative self-focus that is motivated by perceived injustices or threats or loss of social status. And it, it, these are the types of thoughts that are directly associated with anxiety and depression. Why depression? Well, um, sticky, intrusive, midline thoughts um, activate the amygdala, which is, uh, there's a direct axonic connection to the brain's fight, flight, freeze, warning region. The amygdala lies along with the hypothalamus at the hub of the HPA axis that releases stress hormones and activates the sympathetic nervous system. And over time, people become more and more stressed out until we collapse into what's called a dorsal dive or a depressive state. If you'd like to know more about that, the great uh, behavioral psychologist at Stanford, Robert Sapolsky, does a wonderful talk on depression and its relationship to chronic stress. And there is no doubt that uh, engaging in ruminative self-referential ideation is extremely stressful. Self-rumination is also sticky. According to a study by Stick Siegel and Stanhauer in 2002, fMRI scans show just how much of the stress response uh, responds to it. It engages the ventral striatum and the right orbital frontal so we fixate our attention, and it's difficult to pull attention away from negative self-ideations. And if you'd like to know more about that, there's a study by a group of 
Something like 15 Israeli neuropsychologists, Alan Erdman et al., called rumination and ventral striatum functionality. It's a dry study, but I looked it over and it was pretty compelling. Or you can read the entirely more fun works of Richard Schwartz, who is uh, developed successful treatments for OCD and repetitive ideations. And he talks about the underlying structures of repetitive thinking. So it's very clear that people who, uh, who experienced secure attachment have an internal secure base, a sense of being worthy, and also frontal lobes that inhibit excessive self-rumination. But those who experience childhood trauma, unreliable caregiving, are far more susceptible uh, more overactive midbrains, uh, HBA access responses, less ability of the frontal lobe to inhibit midbrain impulses, and more tendencies to what I call injustice gathering, which is essentially looking at all negative experiences and building up a case of unfairness. Uh, victimization, which of course becomes the very um, the the grist for the mill of self-rumination, which is injustice gathering, collecting unfairness, that sense that I've been sig singled out for mistreatment, that my suffering is unique. And of course, the Buddha had little regard for self-rumination. He had a very high regard for mindfulness, which is not focusing attention on one's thoughts about oneself, but paying attention to pretty much everything else. What's going on entirely in my, what are my body sensations right now? What am I feeling right now? What emotional state am I in right now? Uh, where am I focusing my attention? All of the factors of mindfulness pretty much uh, focus our attention away from one thing, which is thinking about ourselves. In the Ball of Honey Sutta, the Buddha states straightforwardly that all suffering stems not only from craving, but from self-rumination. Especially, he said, thoughts that personalize, that categorize. And in another famous sutta, the um, Sabhasava Sutta, the second sutta of the Middle Link Discourses, the Buddha says, which ideas are completely unfit for attention? And which thoughts always cause distress? And then he says, thoughts like, what am I like? What was I like in the past? What's going to happen to me in the future? What is my true nature? What sets me apart from others? And then he goes on, that's all forms of self-fixation create a tangle of ideas, a wilderness of ideas, a contortion of ideas. It's one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha. A wilderness a tangle and a contortion of ideas which are create like a ball and chain that confine us. And he said that uh, those on the spiritual path 
learn how to put aside such thoughts, whereas run-of-the-mill individuals who are not freed from sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair are those that engage in self, such self-rumination. So what switches off self-rumination? Well, task-positive states of the brain. Those are the fastest way out. Whereas self-rumination are midline, they engage ventral uh, and striatal, ventral striatal, ventral medial regions. Task positives are lateral. They engage an entirely different uh, cortical network, um, interacting with the present moment experiences, restores uh also neural circuits in the cingulate that allow us for greater flexibility when we stop thinking about ourselves we get cognitive flexibility we can now focus on uh getting the bigger picture we can develop a new perspective fmri sig signals from medial networks are reduced when we focus on external stimuli, external objects, and when we focus on what we're doing, especially with our hands, there's a thin layer of nerve cells that surround the thalamus that release GABA. And if you'd like to read more about this, the work of James Austin, another neuroscientist uh, who shows just how effective uh, getting out of default mode operation is through meditation. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, GABA is the brain's inhibitory neuro neurotransmitter that is what's called self-annihilating. When people take things like benzodiazepines, <laughs> the reason why they like them is because they uh exogenously induce the upregulation of or the signaling of GABA in the frontal lobe, which annihilates self-reflective self-rumination. Once again, if we focus on self-rumination and issues we can't resolve, we lose the, the ability to flexibly zoom out, gaining perspective, disengaging from inner chatter and focus on what we're doing. The great psychologist Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi uh, noted the common positive state of consciousness that arises when we focus on actions that proceed seamlessly from one moment to the next. Effortless attention occurs when we're not concerned about being evaluated or how we compare to others. So for example, um, when we're cooking, gardening, doing pottery, do, strumming a guitar, working on a car engine, doing a puzzle, uh, jigsaw puzzle, activities where we're not selfing, in other words, thinking about how we compare with others. And I hope that none of you, when you garden or do pottery, are thinking, I'm the best gardener or I'm the worst potterer. Because if you are, then you're totally sabotaging the entire point of 
of task positive um, practices, which is that they shut down midline self-referential thoughts. Self-referential ideations are fueled by at first dopamine, but then cortisol, the stress hormone. On the other hand, when we focus attention on task positive activities where you're not lost in thought, when we are focused attention on what we're doing, um, it releases both glutamate, acetylcholine, it relaxes us, we're far more alert, um, and uh, for the Buddha, focusing attention away from personalizing, selfing ideations, fixating on what sets us apart from others, why I'm so unique, what's the matter with me, why are other people's doing doing so much better, why are why am I such a victim, and so on and so forth. Um, is the lies at the heart of three out of the eightfold path right understanding right thought and right effort which is endeavoring to prevent unsuitable states and themes to grab hold of our attention and then when he lists what are those unsuitable states and themes well sakayaditi and atava upadana thinking about oneself are what come up so when the Buddha lists in Vitaka Vikara, what are the thoughts fit for attention that we should attend to? The first he lists are what in this experience is stressful, but in a universal sense. It's not about me. This experience is stressful and it would be for everyone else. And what can I focus attention on to reduce this suffering? It doesn't personalize the experience as being about me. It doesn't compare my experience with others. It doesn't overgeneralize like I'm really bad at this or I'm really good at this. It allows for what's called metacognition. Is this thought worthwhile or not? Um, I, when I got sober some 28 years ago, part of the process of that was doing uh, meetings with what we call a sponsor. And uh, we did a thing called a fourth step where you talk about all of the thoughts that are continuously uh, popping up, causing resentment. And uh, my sponsor said, you know, if you stopped thinking so much about yourself and about the perceived slights and uh, that others had done and the sense of personal inadequacy, in other words, he gave me the very list of self-rumination, you would be so much happier. And at first I thought, well, that's great, but that's utterly impossible. There's nothing else that a brain can focus on other than <laughs> oneself, one's, you know, sense of victimization or one's sense of inadequacy. <laughs> and uh, so over time, I made a deal with myself where I would... um 
take an hour long break a day where I wasn't allowed to think anything about myself or how I related to others or what others had done to me. And then over time, I spread that hour to two hours. I started noticing that the breaks, and then I made a deal with when that hour was done, I could write down any thought that came up about myself or resentment or sense of inadequacy. And I would write it out so that I would take it seriously. But I noticed over time, as I spread that period to greater and greater and greater durations of the day, that those were the periods of time that I was happiest. I would focus my attention on whatever I was doing. I gave myself lots of tasks. I was at first uh, actually doing some pretty menial work at the time to survive. Um, and uh, um, I just would focus all the time on distracting myself from any self-referential thoughts or reflections. And pretty soon, almost magically, all the depression and anxiety that haunted me for the years before my recovery started to almost magically dissipate. And I would say that beyond, in addition to connecting with others and meditation, um, and trying to play a positive role in the lives of others, probably another cornerstone of my entire spiritual foundation for life has been a dedication to not pick up thoughts that in any way make my experience unique. Any thought that tells me that I'm different, that I'm unusual, that uh, that there's something that I'm falling short, that I'm falling behind, that other people uh, uh, regard me poorly or that I should be doing better. All of those thoughts I don't pick up. And it turns out that I can actually live a very happy, well-adjusted life without sitting around engaging that region of the brain. It's pretty rare now that I pick up such uh, uh, such thoughts as they are for me, like drinks. The famous uh, neuroscientist Sarah Lazar at Harvard did a study on meditation, and she found that when we focus on neutral objects, um, it, over time it not only shrinks the amygdala, but strengthens the cingulate, which allows us to detach or refocus away from sticky uh, themes and flexibly refocus attention. So it's not only helpful having a set of ongoing tasks that we can do with our hands that where we don't compare ourselves to others where we give our ourselves permission just to do the task for the sake of resting our attention on something rather than allowing it ourselves to wander off in thoughts but we are much happier when we're focusing attention on anything other than self-referential ideations. Two clinical psychologists 
uh, Ronald Pekula and Krishna, I can't remember the name, uh, noted that subjects who learn to develop focused states of attention on neutral sensations report feelings of rapturous joy, a sense of profound meaningfulness, and a wonderful altered sense of time. When we focus our attention not only on what we're doing, but also focus attention on skillful themes, i.e. any theme that's not about self and what sets us apart, um, we actually activate a very consistent, regulated secretion of dopamine and acetylcholine and GABA, which balances top-down, which allows for top-down circuits to inhibit um, default mode operation and and also stress. So that's, I think, my talk for tonight. I think I pretty much um, am getting to the point where I'm sounding pretty much redundant that... Um, if you want to address despair, depression, anxiety, and in addition to making sure that we have positive social interconnections or what the Buddha called Kalyanamita with reliable people so that our emotions are regulated, the next best thing to do would be to learn to focus our attention away from one thing which is self-referential ideations, thoughts that compare ourselves and tell us that we're unique, thoughts that take experience personally and focus our attention instead on what we're doing or suitable themes for reflection. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in such a meditation that actually is uh, engages the cortical up or up signaling forward signaling of dopamine and is can induce states of bliss which is a jhana focused meditation or uh, concentration practice so thanks for listening and now what you are invited to do is to find a really comfortable seated position to look away from the computer or phone. Don't look at me. Just find a position where you can lay back, lie on the floor, find a seated, comfortable position on a chair, but give yourself permission to focus uh, at first on something soothing in your environment. And then closing the eyes once you have a nice, relaxing, stable position and bringing your attention to your internal experience, reeling awareness back in from the, from your thoughts. <laughs> from the thinking apparatus to the physical sensations, the somatic experience of your body. And at first you want to find a set of sensations that is very uh, 
spacious, somewhat settled. So it will be a, a different place in the body for each. For some of us, it might be the anywhere the the sensations of the eyes, the belly, the breathing, moving energy up and down the front of the torso, the expansion of the chest, maybe the sensation of air entering through the nose. You could find a state of ease in, if you drop your shoulders and they relax, they could find it there. Just find a spacious area of your body that is uh, relaxed, that you can land attention, a place to land attention. Think of attention as like a helicopter that's been flying around, or like an insect that's been buzzing around, following every everything that's... Uh, unsuitable at times. So you need to give it a place to land in the body. Sometimes for me, it's the palms of my hands can feel really soft and inviting and just inhabiting the palms of the hands can feel really relaxing. Other times I literally can relax my eyes and I feel and once the eyelids and the eyes stop twitching, that area can feel very soothing. In the uh, instructions to the jhanas, one with a focused attention scans the body and the breath and evaluates all the sensations in till one finds a pleasant sensation. And once you find anything that's remotely pleasant in your body, you want to rest your attention on it and make an in intention to put aside any other thoughts that pop up, just promise them you'll attend to them later. Um, any thoughts about the past, the future, things that are not happening right here, right now, in your body, in this set of pleasant sensations. You want to note when you're caught up or hooked and you want to release the bait that's hooked you like a skillful fish. You don't want to be pulled up. You want to stay down in your body. So don't bite the lure. The lure will be thoughts about yourself, things that might happen in the future, things that you want that are not present right now. Every time something pulls you away from this pleasant sensation, right now it's actually my belly feels pretty soft and pleasant. 
So anything that pulls me away from that sensation, I'm just going to say, okay, you can come back later. But for this brief duration of time dedicated to my meditation, I'm just going to let go and keep returning again and again to the soothing sensation of my body. And when I arrive there, I'm going to Take a really rewarding full breath, a long exhalation. If a smile comes easily, I'll incline to that. And it's just rinse and repeat. Putting aside all the obstacles to inner peace, craving, for things that are not present, anger or ill will towards other people, laziness where we don't put any effort in, self-doubt, those thoughts that I can't do this, I'm not good at meditation, you don't have to be good at it.
So at this point, if you found an area of your body that is the sensations of your body, the internal sensations that feel soothing or pleasant, the next practice is to spread the ease uh, to achieve what the Buddha called a state of uh, great pleasantness, sukha and piti. So you do this by, with the in-breath, imagine that you could uh, breathe into whatever area, suppose the area is uh, the belly, uh, if it's not too tight and the belly feels okay, then you breathe in. Imagine the oxygenation and the breath lighting up the belly and starting to expand the area of ease and comfort to areas around the belly, like you're kneading water through dough. You're spreading or suffusing pleasure through the body. So if you feel the pleasure or some ease in your palms of your hands, breathe into there and begin to expand. And as you breathe out, relax even further. Release, relax, so that the sensations of the palms and the wrist and now maybe up into the arm begin to feel even more comfortable and pleasant and soothing. So you're spreading the sensations of ease through the body with the in-breath and then the exhalation, you're just relaxing into that area, making it even more pleasant. And we just want to, if you have multiple areas of your body that feel that don't feel tight, that feel comfortable, you could go around and with each inhalation inflate the sense of ease and comfort, spreading it to neighboring areas of the body. With each exhalation, relaxing, making the ease a little bit more comfortable. We want to move around until we are just spreading so much ease throughout our internal experience and keep returning our attention to it, that we're no longer even focusing on the pleasure. We're just focusing on being present in the body, the body being spacious, relaxed, And the body starts to begin to feel bigger and more expansive 
as we spread and we make ease begin to saturate. This takes time and practice, so if you don't find it quite happening in this meditation, you can return to just finding some place to sit or lie down, finding the most comfortable place in your body and just breathing in, spreading the ease, saturating the body with comfort.
So at this time, you're invited to slowly rebalance your attention, keeping some awareness of the internal sensations of your body and trying to maintain the ease or any ease that you've cultivated by breathing slowly, keeping your shoulders dropped and relaxed, your belly soft, but also, if you like, returning your attention to the 